The Start. On Demand. On Demand. The University of Manitoba Faculty Association has voted to authorize strike action. Today, we spoke to the president of UMFA. A hardened stroke report has revealed how COVID is affecting procedures and the impact on both physical and mental health. Labor force survey. What is it? And why might the info collected be more important now than ever before? Speaking of labor, we checked in with Restaurants Canada to talk about the overwhelming number of job shortages they're facing. And on Monday, we got to tour Canada Life Centre ahead of Thursday's Winnipeg Jets home opener. And wow, we were blown away. And it inspired a conversation we had today about the craziest food you've ever eaten. I'm Brett McGarry, alongside Greg Mackling and Loren McNabb. We are Mackling, McGarry and McNabb. And this is the Tuesday, October 19th podcast for The Start. Mackling, McGarry and McNabb. Good morning. Thank you very much for joining us this morning on The Start. And we had a pretty cool day yesterday, Loren. We got a behind-the-scenes tour of Canada Life Centre ahead of Thursday's Winnipeg Jets home opener. And um, I left, (laughs) I got to be honest, I left super, super excited. I was wired all day long. Yeah, I think I, we all felt the same way. I mean, I know we all have our, our um, passions for the city and the way we feel about it, but there's something about what they're doing this year to bring fans back together. Of course, uh, in the rink for the first time in a long time, we did have the, I know, the preseason games, but this is the home opener, and they've got this crazy new, I don't even know what to call I want to call it like a laser system. I felt kept feeling like Austin Powers was going to come out and do things there. But it was like this... Um, beautiful show light show to start the game off they've got a gorgeous land acknowledgement which they've been doing for years but they've added the light show and and different sights and sounds to it they've got new food which we could talk at length about if we really want to because man hot dogs and hamburgers and tater tots oh my and uh, I just, it really got me excited just for the, the idea of fans coming together again uh, to unite over something special and powerful as opposed to the, the kind of divisiveness and sadness maybe some of us have been feeling of late, Greg. Yes, of course. And to get back in a building that uh, a lot of us have spent a lot of time in over the last 10 years and some place that we haven't been allowed to go and cheer on our favorite team. It was so great to be inside Canada Life Centre and that uh on-ice projection system is something that a lot of people may have seen in other arenas if you've traveled around the NHL or maybe you've seen on social media or television. Uh, Kyle Ballheri of the Winnipeg Jets game day production, he's going to talk to us about this at length later on this morning. We'll share that with you. But he referenced opening night in Las Vegas for the Vegas Golden Knights and Seattle Kraken. And with this on-ice projection in Vegas, they actually had an animated Kraken crack through the ice in oh Vegas. Yeah, it was cool. And then, of course, if you've ever been to a game in Vegas, they have the night. He actually goes out on the ice and will interact with these animated uh, dragons and and different life forms, and of course he will slay it on behalf of the Golden Knights, and then he 
puts his sword into some giant rock that's affixed at center ice. And it's like, oh my gosh, where am I? And then you realize, oh yeah, that's right. I'm in Vegas. Everything's a show. Well, Winnipeg, you know, hockey is one thing, but people are demanding more and more in terms of their in-game, in-arena, in-stadium experiences, and the Jets have really stepped up with this. It, it is uh, very impressive. Well, here, let me just... It, it's not the same, of course, without the video, but let me just play the audio. And you can hear my excitement in a moment. Kind of... <laughs> so that's me going... So I've posted this video on our 680CJOB Instagram. It's on my Instagram, at Brett McGarry. You, you have to see it. It's just as soon as the lights went out and they hit that that music and the lights started to come up, I was just mesmerized and blown away. I felt like a seven-year-old kid again. It's so, so exciting. And it's good. You know, Vince McMahon, WWE, long time ago, decided to start referring to wrestling is sports entertainment, right? Because it's not sports, it's yes. entertainment. And, and we talked to... Oh, sorry, Brett, finish your thought. Apologies. And uh, this adds that entertainment value for those who might not be sports fans. Like you don't have, If you go to a Jets game, if someone says, hey, I got a take to the Jets game, you want to come? And they might be like, meh. But if you go and see that, how can you not be entertained, Loren? Yeah, and I was going to say, you know, people go for different reasons, as you point out, and, and what might drive you there. It might be the, might be the music or the food or a bit of the game or bo- a combination of both. It might be all game. You might be like my husband who just likes to sit there and watch the game, and if I'm in a chatty mood, he just, you know, he's like, are we here to talk? Like, what's happening here? But um, I say that jokingly. Like, it, it just... But there's all sorts of reasons to go. And at 9.35, Greg and I uh, chatted with the director of game production, and about the idea, Greg, that like it's getting, it's becoming a competition, right? A, it's competition for your dollars. They, they want fans to come to the seats, but it's also a competition. And in the NHL, I think you're really seeing it because you highlighted Vegas. Uh, you'll also talk about the Kraken and, and their, their Twitter feed is hilarious with the things they're putting out. This idea that they they get that they're also trying to capture you with other means besides just the game. And so they're taking that seriously. And the, the idea that you're going to spend this money on a ticket, treat it like you would a movie. Like I never go to the movie. I don't, without hitting up the, um, trailers beforehand, right? You want to see the pregame at a movie. And I want to see the pregame. At a game, which includes these videos and the great production they're doing. Well, Brett, in response to that video, and you're bang on, Loren, because let's face it, A, people travel now, unlike back in the day, going to uh, an NHL game in another city was for the very few, the privileged few. And so, uh, you know, more and more fans have gotten away to different places and and connecting uh, visits to Florida with NHL hockey and seeing the Jets on the road and Vegas and California and these different cities that people would like to see otherwise. So the NHL and the Jets don't exist in a vacuum like they did in their first NHL iteration when you maybe had a dozen games on TV. You weren't really aware of what was going on in different buildings like you just sort of took what you got and one of our uh, listeners uh, and uh, one of uh, 
our friends on Twitter, Greg Polinchuk, uh, reacted to your video that you put on Twitter, Brett, and he says, I'm old enough to remember years back <laughs> when the old Winnipeg Jets were showing off their first Winnipeg Arena score clock that had an electronic message board <laughs> that seemed so wonderfully futuristic back then. And he says, if I remember correctly, they got the clock secondhand. And yeah, I mean, uh, they had the digital dancing hot dog. Everything was highly pixelated. You could sort of see pictures or images of the players and and clapping hands that were could never keep the beat with the music like it was very very primitive but now people know what's going on elsewhere and it's like I want that in my NHL arena and the and the Jets are answering so we'll have more on this at 9:35 and at 6:45 we're going to talk about the food and if you want to see some of the behind-the-scenes stuff, I posted a bunch of video this morning to our 680CJOB Instagram story, including a couple of pictures of that food. And I also just want to quickly mention, um, <laughs> did you guys find it as awkward as I did when we first rolled in? It's the first event where we got to see other media in person in like 19 months. And there was one point where I didn't know, do I handshake? Do we do the fist bump? Do we do the elbow uh, you know, it was of the Bash Brothers from the Oakland Athletics. Conseco uh, and McGuire. I just I didn't know how to greet anybody. I mean this with all the love in my heart, Brett. I feel like I'm going to see you once I move back to the studio every day for like six months before it stops feeling awkward. I don't know, because I like to force you into the awkward. So, yeah. <laughs> she, when she gave me a hug and she said, I'm just going to stare long. Stare into my eyes now, Brett. <laughs> I was like, no, no, I can't handle it. Okay, we're going to check. too much. <laughs> The family of a Winnipeg man who died in hospital without his designated care provider, his wife, by his side, is speaking out in hopes the health minister hears how badly understaffed the hospitals have been during this pandemic. The story comes from Alicia Thwaites, whose dad has been battling cancer over the past year. In early September, her dad, Alfred, was rushed to hospital. My father was a stage three, likely stage four cancer patient who was experiencing pretty severe chest pain and he had collapsed at home. So he was brought to HSC Emerge by ambulance and he passed away the following morning. He spent 12 of his last 18 hours on this earth alone because his my mom wasn't allowed to be with him. So she's sharing this story with uh, with folks that, so that we have a better understanding of what was going on with her both her dad's care, but she worries with other people's care. So he was rushed to hospital. She said he spent several hours in the ambulance before he was eventually admitted to the ER. There was a lack of communication as to what was going on. And again, at no point was her mom, who was vaccinated, allowed to see him. We've played by, by the rules to keep everyone safe for this whole time. The, the thing that we find most frustrating right now is that we can have hundreds of people who are fully vaccinated at concerts. We can have thousands of people who are fully vaccinated at bomber games. And yet my dad, who was critically ill, was not allowed to have his essential care partner with him during an incredibly traumatic and, and stressful time. So Alicia's dad, Alfred, passed away September 3rd. If you recall, back then we were doing several stories on wait times in Winnipeg's emergency rooms and how they were struggling with severe staffing shortages. People were leaving without being seen by a physician. 
Alicia says her family has written a letter to the health minister asking her not to only address staffing issues, but communication issues for families going through the end of life of a loved one. They were so short-staffed that the, the people that were working didn't have time to keep us properly updated. They weren't able to answer our questions because they didn't have enough people on the ground in the ER to to tell us what was going on. And no follow-up communications since then other than the documents? Nope, not from, well, what would they follow up on? Do you believe that he could have been saved? Is that your concern or not you've written to the health minister? There was a stage four cancer patient who should have been allowed his, his person with him. It this like things turned sideways very quickly for my family. We didn't find out that my dad wasn't coming home until midnight when they called my mom and their their words to my mom were, What are your husband's end of life wishes? She found out that my dad wasn't coming home over the phone. My dad found out that he was going to die while he was by himself. That's like that, that something has to change. I, I fully appreciate the COVID regulations, but if people can be fully vaccinated at football games, someone who is a stage four cancer patient should have had his person with him. So we've reached out to, or we're in the process of reaching out to Shared Health and the health minister on this. Of course, there are processes in place and visitation policies have changed, I think, probably countless times in the past 20 months at hospitals because they're trying to balance the risks of COVID-19. I think we all understand that. But this family says they've been playing it safe throughout the pandemic and they, you know, were ready to go in. And so there's some questions about, A, what was the process here? What was the communication? Was it staffing that led to this, you know, obviously not the way someone would want to lose their loved one. And then it gets to the question I think we all might ask ourselves, Greg, at this time, how do you want your, if you get the opportunity to have a say in your dying minutes, hours, weeks, I know some people don't, things can happen really quickly, but knowing how this ended for their dad, I think is part of the trauma for them because, you know, you want to be there at least to hold their hand, even if they're not coherent or give them that last kiss or hug. And we know this has been the struggle for thousands in this pandemic who've had to maybe even say goodbye over FaceTime or over video. But the feeling that they they feel, I think this family feels like they could have, should have been there and weren't and they can't figure out why. Well, you know, um, as someone who uh, held... Uh I held my mom's hand in her last minutes uh, with us. Uh, she was on a ventilator, and uh, we've got a very large family. You know, I've got four siblings and a stepdad, and uh, at the time my grandmother was still around, and there must have been 12 or 13 of us that were there at Health Sciences Center the night my mom passed away, and we all got to say our goodbyes, and we were also there when the doctors needed our advice on a course of treatment and what to do and, and how to, well, I'll just be, come out and say it. They kept her on a ventilator so that my stepdad, who was traveling from Boys of Vane, three hours away, could say his last goodbyes. All, that's, all that is, not, none of that is happening anymore. I can, I can only imagine what this family feels I know how special, how important it was to all of us to go through all that. So this, this is obviously heartbreaking. And then you add that whole layer of advocacy. This man, uh, you know, we don't know what level of consciousness he was in. Who gives permission 
for certain treatments or lack of treatment in the case of an end-of-life care plan when you don't want extreme measures taken to save your life. There are lots of people who have made that absolutely clear that that's the situation they're in. Well, who speaks on their behalf if they're unconscious? Unconscious. It's a, it's a situation uh, that is obviously evolving, uh, but how do you square that circle? How do you get consent for anything from someone who cannot speak for themselves? And what do you do now if they come back and say, and um, again, they have rules and protocols and we might hear more from shared health, but what, as she said, well, what could they say to us now? The moment, this crucial moment has passed. So we'll have more on this story, of course, uh, throughout the day and ask those questions. At the end of your life, how would you want it to go? I would guess for 100% of us, it would not be like this. We got to a behind-the-scenes tour at Canada Life Centre yesterday, ahead of Thursday's Winnipeg Jets home opener. They showed us their fancy new light show. It is super, super intense, and we've got a video of, of that up on our 680CJOB Instagram if you want to check it out. It's super it's crazy. I, we were all just like, I was like a, a little kid watching this thing. But we also got to try some of their new food. And they have something. So they have a, a burger called the Jet Dog Burger. It's two six-ounce beef patties, four Jet Dog sliders. So it's like hot dog on a burger. And then two slices of cheese. And it's topped with onion rings and barbecue sauce. So that was cool. But I think the slam dunk yesterday, everybody's favorite seemed to be the tot dog, which is a hot, a battered hot dog coated in potatoes. It was basically like a tater tot hot dog, Loren. It was crispy. I do think there was some sort of maybe like an aioli or something on there. Jalapeno. Yes, a jalapeno aioli. So it had a little bit of a kick to it. it the, the hot dog was just the right amount of juice and the crispiness of the top i could i came home and raved i didn't eat again last night quite frankly i had a salad at like seven o'clock that was it because i had eaten so much yesterday it was awesome yeah super good so that got us thinking about the like the craziest food we've ever eaten so like as sport i mean good lord greg you've probably eaten some nutty stuff in your various sporting travels in the u.s yeah absolutely there are some great hot dogs out there and there are great takes on traditional dishes the first time i, I saw uh sushi at a baseball game I kind of fell over that was in Seattle over 20 years ago this is when you know the new era of baseball stadiums and hockey arenas were starting to be built where it wasn't just you know uh, build an arena with some seats in it come and sit down and watch some hockey baseball or football like I said like we said earlier it's all about the experience now and and probably my favorite <laughs> consumable was at a Vegas Golden Knights game you have seen those yard glasses yep they're well <laughs> they're about how long would they be brett <laughs> a yard long three feet long <laughs> yeah <laughs> they called that for a reason and uh filled with margarita uh with a straw to go with it was just it margarita or daiquiri i think it was a margarita okay. out of the slush machine yeah uh it was 24 us dollars <laughs> 
Yeah. I drank every drop. Oh, yeah. And I enjoyed it very much. I love those things. Uh, Fat Tuesday is one. Uh, it, they, that's like the chain of those things. But every hotel in Vegas has one of those, at least one of those slushy, um, yummy drink things. So, yeah, you just walk around in Vegas with a yard in your hand. Good times. Uh, don't forget the Bombers have st- the Walby Burger. So, like, there's a right. lot of crazy food to be eaten out there. But Skylar Peters in for Jeff Braun. When you told me what you've tried, um, I didn't. I, I I didn't know if I wanted to throw up, if I wanted to give you a high <laughs> five. Like, what? Tell us about it. Yeah. Uh, well, I was uh, in Phoenix with the family on spring break. I think it was like eleven or twelve. So this is like a little while ago, and, and I I wish I remember more of it. And I've been grinding on the internet in the last like half hour trying <laughs> to find this restaurant, but I can't. Uh, but yeah, I had a fried rattlesnake. And it was, uh, it was crazy. Yeah. It, it like, it looked like a snake, like as it was presented and, and, uh, it was like lightly battered and, uh, we shared it with, uh, the family. I think there was probably four or so of us. And I, I remember it was like lightly crispy, kind of like calamari, but it just tasted like chicken. Was it Rustler's Roost in Phoenix? That's what it. Yes, that's what it was. All that grinding How for did nothing. You find that? I, I, I typed in Phoenix restaurant fried rattlesnake. First thing that pops up. <laughs> Brett McGarry's Google Foo mastery continues. But wait, that what do they hilarious. do with the venom? Is there not a ven- venom in a rattlesnake? Like, does that extract it they turn, first? They turn like, that into. Do they into milk an, it in front of you and then kill it? It's served like tr- an au jus. Yeah, they turn it into yeah. an aioli. <laughs> <laughs> it's on the burger. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, I don't. Uh, I don't remember. Uh, how much it cost? It was, I, I think, quite substantial. Uh, so it's, I think, you got to do it for the story more than the enjoyment. But uh, that's what we did. That is neat. Okay, what about you, Poitras? Well, the craziest thing I ever ate was uh, alligator. That was at Gator World in Kissimmee, Florida. And again, surprise, surprise, it tasted like chicken. Uh, but <laughs> I had the uh, the animal. The it's like I've never ordered off of a secret menu ever ever, and I, I've only ever done it once. Because I'm usually not into the crazy stuff. Like, I'm usually, whenever I have, like, something that's got, like, all this crazy stuff on, I'm always like, I would just be happier if I just had a regular burger. I don't like all this other stuff on it. Um, but I do like that tot dog. I'm going to try that. Um, but uh, I had an animal burger at A&W, which was six patties. Oh. And I and I ate oh. that whole thing, and uh, I, I felt that for about two days. And my, my buddy Max it was, like, pounding these things time and time. It was, like, his eighth at that time in, like, a two-week span. And I ate the whole thing, and he looked at me right in the eyes, and he extended his hand out, and he said, Welcome to the Legion of Beef. <laughs> what, so, did they, what did they call this, Cam? This, the Animal Burger. The I was going to say this for, for my, myself as well. I, I couldn't finish mine, but my buddy's uncle ate two of them. Like in one sitting, and it was crazy, and that's the oh. that's like craziest thing because I'm I'm not a very interesting guy when it comes to my food. I, I like my regular food, but yeah, that's what I was gonna go with was the oh, animal. That's burger. crazy. I, I had no idea the animal burger. Can you still get an animal burger? I, yeah, it's just a it's just a double uh, grandpa. Oh. It, it's just yeah, double grandpa. Okay, Loren, what, what about that, you? But, but you have to add, like you don't see that on the menu. No, right? it's, it's an off menu. Yeah, it's a secret menu item. Yeah. I love the off menu stuff. What, what would you recommend? Is there something going on back there that I don't know about, ma'am? <laughs> this is a McDonald's. There's nothing. There's a lot going. No, but like, I, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Um, so it's not a crazy food. Like I have done alligator. I've done ostrich, uh, different things when I was living in Zimbabwe. But I just have to say the craziest, it wasn't the craziest food I'd ever eaten. It was just the craziest amount of food because I swear to you, Harari Zimbabwe had like the first skip the dishes I had ever encountered. It was just this, I discovered this when I was living there alone and I, you know, you're lonely. You don't have a lot going on when you first move to a new place or a new country. I don't know the language. And somehow I'd stumbled across this menu in this complex up the street where this guy on a motorbike would bring you anything within that complex that you wanted. So there was like a Greek restaurant, a Nando's with like peri peri chicken. There was like a, a candy shop. And I, I got to know him so well. He would just bring me whatever I wanted. And I never, I, I remember thinking when Skip the Dishes arrived, I was like, Zimbabwe had this like in the, the year 2000. Side note, I gained 22 pounds that year. But, <laughs> but beyond that, that was the craziest amount of food. I'd, I'd eat, like I would order the chicken and then wait an hour and order some Greek and then wait an hour and order just a chocolate bar. And this guy would show up with just a chocolate bar. And I was like, this can't be cost effective for him or my body. But that, I, that's just the <laughs> most fun experience I've had. Not healthy. So we have bomber tickets up for grabs based on your text messages at 204-780-6868. We start the conversation, you finish it, and you win tickets to see the Winnipeg Blue Bombers versus BC on Saturday, October 23rd. So inspired by the Tot Dog, the new hot dog that the Winnipeg Jets are serving, tell us about the craziest food you've ever had, whether it's something like really exotic or weird, like the fried rattlesnake, or it's just you, the biggest, most lavish meal you've ever had. Like it, just Google chicken and waffles at a restaurant called Hash House of Go-Go in Las Vegas, and you're going to look at it and go, what am I looking at here? Right now, we want to talk about how there is growing worry amongst doctors and researchers that the health of the people living with heart disease or stroke has only grown worse during this pandemic. Yeah, the Heart and Stroke Foundation recently surveyed both healthcare professionals and patients and found that two in three had at least one medical appointment changed, delayed, or canceled in the pandemic, Loren. There are so many people I think can relate to the story. You know, we were talking about delayed care frequently throughout this program. And we've also had in the news run the story from Marnie Blunt about a stroke survivor who struggled too with some of their care. And so you've got the healthcare professionals who are worried about this. You've got the patients who've had procedures delayed. And then, of course, there are people professionals who were worried that a decrease in cardiovascular health in people who didn't have any existing concerns or heart conditions prior to the pandemic, well, that they might have them now and they're not being treated. And so there's so many facets to this story that we want to get to. Dr. Sepide Puyana is Associate Professor NMD with a specialty in stroke rehabilitation. And I uh, want to welcome you to our program. Good morning. Good morning to you. Let's start with the patients. Does a delay in care translate into worse outcomes? Definitely. Um, we have noticed that a lot of patients with heart disease or stroke, they delay seeking medical attention. Um, at the same time, we have noticed a lot of resources have been taken away from them during this pandemic. They have delayed access or very limited access to resources like rehabilitation, community therapy, and all those services. And all those missed appointments definitely means that they are going to, unfortunately, suffer from worse outcomes. 
early detection is such a critical part of successfully treating so many ailments, uh, Dr. Puniana. Uh, so when it comes to heart health, when it comes to brain health, how critical is it? I'm, I'm in my early 50s and I just booked my first physical, I guess it's going to be two years now because I didn't go for one. I had to wait a substantial amount of time to get in to see my physician. How many of us are delaying just those regular appointments, let alone um, reacting to something that might be more serious? Unfortunately, it's a very common story that we hear these days. We see people that they have ignored their health for such a long time. Um, never mind, like imagine as you, as you were saying, we are healthy people and we are aware of what's going on. Imagine that you already have suffered from a heart disease and a stroke and you already are vulnerable to be forgotten in terms of appointments, follow-up, communities, and you are already at risk for consequences and complications as a result of those missed appointments. That's why the effect of this pandemic on those vulnerable populations have been 100% worse than us as general population. What about the effect on mental health? Totally. And during this survey, all the professionals, most of these health professionals and researchers, they noticed that mental health issues was very significant for the people living with heart disease and stroke as a result of this pandemic. Um, if we want to refer to a few points, for example, the effect of social isolation. We all suffered from social isolation during pandemic. Uh, for this population, it's been even more significant. Uh, lack of informal support these patients may have. Many of them, unfortunately, adopted unhealthy lifestyle behavior. And, of course, as you mentioned, they had limited access to the health services. And as, as a result of that, their mental health has been significantly affected. One of the things I've been wondering about is that we've seen an increase in virtual care. And so I think your study, your survey found with the heart and stroke that I think eight in 10 patients had at least received virtual care during this pandemic. And so there's part of me that appreciates that because there are times where I think that makes sense. But when I'm talking about my heart health or my brain health, doctor, I, I feel like the virtual is maybe not the best option. Who's, who's doing my blood pressure checks? Who's looking internally? Who's listening to the heart? And, and those things don't happen in a virtual setting. So is it a bit of mixed feelings about this as a result of, you know, this emerging trend of virtual care? Totally. So virtual care can be acceptable in certain situations, like in uh, some certain kind of care that we can provide to our patients. It's definitely not going to replace in-person care as we can provide to our patients. And also um, for, again, more vulnerable patients, like who, who, the people who live in rural areas, how are they going to access to uh, having a, uh, appropriate virtual care? Like, for example, they have no high-speed internet access. Um, or they don't have even access to places to go for uh, the doctor to check them uh, on the telehealth and all those systems. So visual health has been adopted during this pandemic, has been very helpful. And as doctors, we hope and we predict that it's going to stay for a longer time. Uh, and hopefully we can adopt a hybrid model of care that can include both virtual and in-person care. Because yeah, there's a lot of technology now that can monitor things from a distance that you would only be able to get in a hospital, fair to say? Absolutely, yeah. So as we embrace those things, uh, what else can we be doing to get things back on track, so to speak? What, what should we be demanding? What should we be looking for? I hope at least we can be prepared for the future situations like this. At least we know what 
this patient population can suffer from if we again have to cancel all the outpatient rehab services, what's going to happen to them? If all these appointments are going to be canceled, how much suffer they're going to have to go through? So be, be prepared for the future and be able to adapt and innovate uh, different services and systems to be able to provide the care to the patients at highest need at the highest uh, important time in the future. That's, uh, that's, uh, that's I think, uh, that should be our hope for the future care to this population. Dr. Sepida Puyania, Associate Professor and MD with a specialty in stroke rehabilitation. Thank you very much for joining us this morning. We appreciate the time. We got bomber tickets to give away for Saturday's game against BC, and we're using the tot dog as inspiration. We got to try the tot dog yesterday at Canada Life Center ahead of Thursday's home opener. It's like a giant tater tot hot dog. That's basically the simplest way to put it, and it was awesome, and it was kind of ridiculous. Like when you think about it, it's like what? It's just it. I we only had like little samples of it. I would imagine trying to eat that would be. A huge mess, but I guess that's, you know, that's part of the fun, well, right? The jumbo jet dog is similar when you yeah. pile on the pierogies and the onions and bacon and cheese, uh, you know, so I've heard or so I've seen other people attempt. But Brett, you were sharing some wicked pictures with us last night about a meal that sort of uh, took this to the next level. And one of our listeners, uh, Navy is very uh, loyal listener and uh, Navy says hash house has the best chicken and waffles hands down. And if I'm not mistaken, that's in Las Vegas, right? They have two or three locations there. Yeah, I think they've got one in Vegas and I think they've got a couple elsewhere in, in the States, but the, the one that I went to was in Las Vegas. It's in the, I think the hotel's now called the link Pretty sure it used to be in the Imperial Palace, but they've since renovated and rebranded. And uh, yeah, it's just crazy. I did not have the chicken and waffles, but I had something called Andy's Sage Fried Chicken Benedict. And um, it's basically fried chicken with everything you could think, Eggs Benedict. It, it ended up just being a big pile of mash. Oh it, it was it was gigantic and um, it, it did the trick. But uh, it was such a giant mess. Um, Andrea, with a nice little local connection here, the Monster Burger from Red Top. She says, my son had it for his 10th birthday dinner and lunch the next day <laughs> and dinner the next day. Yes. Uh, six patties? Does it look like that? I was trying yep. to count them in the photo. I think photo. it's at least six, yeah. Six patties on a like a hoagie bun. And it makes me so happy to see that this is still a thing because I think I had it for my oh, 10th birthday. That's cute. It was, I don't know if it was my 10th, but my, I definitely had it for a birthday dinner when I was a kid, but I crushed it. The thing about the burger that size or a sandwich that size or the stuff, the monstrosities that I'm seeing at Hash House a go-go here, like it's just a pile of stuff. Like how are you eating? You almost just, just drop your face into it like a pie eating <laughs> contest and just have at her. What is the point of picking it up? What's the point of utensils here? Like you need to use your hands. Well, like the saying goes, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time, and you just kind of just take your time, <laughs> deconstruct it if necessary. A That's a saying? <laughs> yeah. yeah. How do you eat an elf- elephant? One okay. bite at a time. It's very okay. simple. Uh, I, I'm most impressed from Andrea's picture here is the young man celebrating his birthday took the tomatoes off the burger. Oh, yeah. come on. <laughs> well done, young man. Well done. Do you not like tomatoes either? Listen. 
Oh gosh, here we go again. I said it yesterday. The list of things that I like, that list is much shorter than uh, listing my things that I don't like. I feel like I want to have you for supper and have like a salad with celery and tomatoes and just things that Greg would never eat. Doesn't like lettuce and tomatoes, but he likes shrimp and bacon on pizza. Mr. Mackling, you are an enigma. This story uh, made me smile and laugh a lot. And this person says, hey, not a crazy food story, but overly gluttonous. I love fried chicken. So for my birthday two years ago, I wanted to try all the fried chicken in the city. We have six adults able to drive and we timed it. So each of us drove first to the farthest fried chicken places. So there's Jollibee. There was also a Korean fried chicken place. And then the others went to the closer restaurants, KFC, Mary Brown, Chicken Chef, and Popeye's. We purchased gravy from each place, too. So much chicken, so little time. So much gravy. A gallon of gravy (laughs) left over that got mixed up together and frozen for leftovers and a huge bag of fried chicken left over. Mmm, those were the days. And I made sure to point out, hey, don't forget about Magic Bird fried chicken on Mm. Sherbrooke. That's my favorite place. Oh, really? I love frozen gravy. Like, I I just uh, the other day put leftover gravy from the turkey in the freezer, and there's nothing more... Honestly, when you discover that, you're like, right, there's gravy in the freezer. And then you start thinking of the things to put with the gravy. Like, it's not like you already have the meat or whatever good to go. You're like, ooh, I found a tin of gravy. What can we do with this? That's like me with blue cheese dressing. What can I dip into this to consume more? Wait a minute. You won't eat, like, a pickle (laughs) or a tomato or a salad. But, hey, I'll take the worst possible dressing with the worst worst. possible flavor, the most offensive Beyond marble cheese, the blue cheese is the most offensive of cheeses. It's gross. But yeah, I won't eat celery, just water. I won't eat lettuce, just water. I won't eat pickle, which is just a cucumber, but I will eat blue cheese. This is where we're at. This is where we're at. I can't handle you, man. I cannot do this anymore. This is outrageous. This is outrageous culinary decisions you're making. I'm calling your wife. what what is that going to do? Exactly? I don't know. I just need to commiserate with her. I feel like we've, you know, we'll Listen, maybe have, have a tank of wine together. Doesn't and even phase her anymore <laughs> at all. Mm, Jackie, okay, here's the number. Yeah, I know. Okay. You, you know, you can put phone. the blue cheese dressing on uh, lettuce and tomatoes, Greg. Oh. I can't. Wedge, wedge salad. It's actually very good. It's, oh. It's okay. No. Okay. All right. Bacon bits on a wedge salad. Keep those text messages coming for a chance to win a pair of bomber tickets for Saturday's game against BC. And speaking of the bombers, Mr. Fortier, it's Tuesday just after 730, which means breakfast with the bombers brought to you by the cooperators. Find an advisor at cooperators.ca, a better place for you. This morning on Breakfast with the Bombers, head coach Mike O'Shea explains how his team has one solitary goal at the beginning of the season. Yeah, the Blue Bombers have become the masters of the we-are-looking-to-go-1-0 this week philosophy and has become the mantra. Bob Irving dug a little deeper into this idea last night on the coach's show, Loren. Yeah, so the Blue Bombers, they can clinch first place in the West. Unbelievable, with a win versus BC Saturday night. So the question, of course, to the coach is, that's the goal, right? No, we have one goal at the start of the year, uh, and that would be the most important goal. After that, you know, how it, how we get to that goal, um, you know, we'll take it as we get it. So first place isn't a goal? No. Uh, you know, I, yeah, I guess I don't know how to explain this properly. 
when we have the, the meetings at the beginning of the year when the team's been cut down and, the, and everybody's sitting there, you know, we, we agree on, on our goal for the year, our one goal. So how we get to it is um, based solely on the following a, a simple formula, following the process that we lay out each and every week, pretty well the same process, and sticking to the pillars that we believe help us win football games. After games, we look at the reasons why we won or lost, and we compare them to the to the pillars that we want to play by that we think help us win football games. You know, how what our record ends up at the end of the season, where we get seeded playoff-wise, doesn't change the fact that we have one goal in mind. And maybe changes the path of how to get there, but it doesn't change the one goal. And we just choose not to lose sight of that fact. Mm-hmm. Um, and it gets increasingly more difficult with social media and with all this, uh, you know, the media attention that gets um, that, that your team garners, you know, throughout a, a good season. But we have to remain focused on that one goal. And I said the, the path is, it's not labeled as easier or harder or like, so in 2019, when everybody said, oh, you got to win three games on the road, that was basically irrelevant because that was just the path that we had to take to get to our end goal, <laughs> All right? So it wasn't to be labeled as like, once again, as, as difficult or monumental or easy or not a problem. You know, it just is. We're going to choose to stick to the process and where that leads us, uh, leaves us in the standings. And then, you know, that'll dictate the, the path we have to take. From there, the opponents will be decided. And in the meantime, we'll just continue doing the work that we need to do, sticking to the way we do our work. <laughs> yeah, well, that's you, you very well explained. Now, so the goal is to win the Grey Cup. Sure. Now, yeah. uh, reaching your goal mm-hmm. gets a little easier if you finish first in the West. Well, that, once again, that's a label that says that uh, a first week by makes it easier. I, I don't know that, right? I mean, we're still going to do our work and we're still going to face tough opponents, you know, and it's that's not been decided yet. Uh, Brett, I don't know about you, but I'm imagining Major League, you know, the movie Major League and Loren, where they have the, the picture, the cardboard cutout of yeah. the owner in the they leopard. The pieces. Yeah, every time they win a game. I don't think they have a picture of Wade Miller in the dressing room and are taking <laughs> off a piece after every victory because no. that's not what it's all about. It's that fascinating approach, and it's to the point where those that intera- those of us that interact the team, all of us, right, we know about this, this 1-0 and o approach. What's, you know, what's the goal this week? Well, just to go 1-0 and o this week. Okay. It's an incredible approach. It's fascinating, and listening to this looking back at 2019 you know the team had to go to calgary for the west semifinal and go one and oh and then go to regina to do the same thing but you aren't thinking about one week or the next week until completing the other and the players have 100 percent bought into this and who can argue with the approach they've developed the university of manitoba faculty association has voted to strike yeah, we want to bring on now Orvi Dingwall of UMFA to talk about what went down last night and say good morning. Good morning, Or Orvi. Good morning. So thank you for taking the time for being with us. I know the vote took place over Saturday and Sunday. First of all, just how many staff members turned out to vote? 
Uh, we had uh, 920 of our members um, uh, voted to uh, authorize the strike vote. So that would represent how many people with or staff within the association? Do you know? Um, almost close to uh, to all of our members. We have um, 1,260 members. Okay, so then the the vote was to strike. The result was it overwhelming? Yeah. Yes. Yes. You can definitely say that. And I think at the root of that, though, though our members have authorized a strike vote. Um, in by doing so, they're really calling on the university administration to come to the table with a reasonable salary offer. No one wants to go on strike, um, but we. this is our members' way of saying that we need to be a competitive university um, or else we're going to lose students, we're going to lose um, our faculty members, and we're not going to be able to attract the top talent that we want to be here in Manitoba. So this is a call to administration to uh, provide stability for students in this moment and come to the bargaining table where our team is is ready um, ready to meet and to negotiate a settlement so that we don't have to go on strike. Orvi, you mentioned stability for students and you know it's been understood that there's been support from students for faculty in their negotiation process but could that change does that narrative potentially flip once a strike mandate is declared and a strike vote is taken and there's now this you know this declaration that yet yeah, we're in a strike position our members say that we're good to go are you concerned now that goodwill between students and uh, faculty may disappear yeah, certainly this is a, a very stressful time for students. University is always a stressful time. I know midterms are happening right now um, and that, uh, you know, students are just trying to keep their heads down and stay focused on their studies. But uh, we've been meeting with a lot of student groups and, and like you mentioned, we've been receiving letters of support for them uh, because when they're in their classrooms, it's our members who are teaching them. And it's our members who are uh, mentoring them and providing them research opportunities and who are engaging with them on a daily basis. Um, and, and so they know how challenging it is right now for students, know how challenging it is for our members. Um, students also know that the, they have long wait lists to get into mandatory classes that they need to graduate. And they know a big part of that reason um, that there are those wait lists is because we have a lot of vacancies right now because we're not able to um, recruit and retain our members. So uh, we students are really smart. That's why they're at university. And they recognize what the issues are. Um, and and we look forward to continuing to meet with the student groups. You mentioned negotiation. Is there still room for negotiation? Absolutely. Uh, there is still room, and our bargaining team is really committed to getting a deal at the table, uh, at the bargaining table, and our board of representatives meets on Thursday, and they're going to authorize at that meeting um, a deadline for bargaining. So really a call to action to administration to um, really uh, take this seriously.
85% of your members voted to strike Orvi. What do you state, say to students who, yes, yeah, some, we know there has been some support for what you're calling for, but at the same time, this has been a really frustrating situation for students who last year dealt with the threat of the strike. In 2016, there was a strike. This seems to be happening often. And this, maybe there's room for negotiation, but this kind of puts their future into a very uncertain territories. What do you say to them? Uh, uh, yeah, it's it's really it's really tough. We absolutely recognize that, and so we say to students, talk to your your professors and instructors, and also um, we encourage students, but also their family members, to get in touch with their local MLAs and let them know um, about how hard this is on students, because a large part of the reason that we are in this current uh, situation is that our wages have been frozen essentially since 2016, and that has been um, uh, directly related to the government and the um, and their wage freeze legislation. And so, the university is supposed to be autonomous or independent from the government. And we're increasingly seeing um, the government's involvement in these negotiations. So um, just encourage students to talk to their faculty, uh, get to understand what the issues are. And also, um, you know, as as uh, everyone is feeling the pressure of this moment, just to uh, also talk to their um, elected members of the legislature. Orvi Dingwall, University of Manitoba Faculty Association President, joining us live on The Start. Orvi, thank you very much for this. Much appreciated. Nice to talk to you this morning. Thousands of Canadians lost their jobs during the pandemic. And, and while many have been able to get back to work, we know there are still people struggling to find employment. And certain sectors of the economy are struggling to find staff. Yeah, we hear these numbers every month from Stats Canada. They put out the job numbers, you know, where you hear the unemployment rate or the employment rate. And all that info comes from a monthly survey of businesses that are asked to explain what's going on from their perspective. And so later in this hour, just after 8.35, we are going to talk about the huge shortage in the restaurant industry. And we're talking tens of thousands of people that they're looking for to come in to work into some of these restaurants. But first, Greg, we wanted, we thought it was important to get a better sense of where all this information is coming from, because man, it's really going to paint the picture and maybe guide us out of this pandemic in the months ahead. Well, it's called the Labour Force Survey. And I have to be honest, I had never heard about it until Sunday morning. I was at curling with my kids and one of my very good friends was there and she's in the middle of taking this survey and she gave me some intimate details about what the survey looks like. And I was fascinated. So we've reached out to the folks at Statistics Canada. Vince Dale is director for Centre or the Centre for Labour Market Information at StatsCan. Joins us now. Good morning, Vince. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing very well. So I've got a little bit of an idea of how this works for our listeners. How does the Labour Force Survey work? Okay. Thank you. Very happy to talk about the, the Labour Force Survey. It's a monthly survey. It's one of the biggest and most important surveys done by Stats Canada. Uh, essentially, the way it works is that every month we select a sample of what we call dwellings or physical houses in Canada. And then we go and make contact with the people living in those houses. Um, we explain the purpose of the survey, about 50,000 people per month, 50,000 houses per month. And uh, then we, uh, we ask them a series of questions about uh, what we call their labor force activities or 
whether they worked, whether they looked for work, uh, if they weren't uh, in the labor market, what they were doing, whether it was studying or, or other activities. So basically, we take a snapshot every month of about 50,000 households in Canada, and that's the, uh, the the data that's collected through that process is what uh, ultimately ends up as the unemployment rate that you guys report every month. So it's not just businesses you're talking to. It could be anyone. They might own a business. They might work for someone. They might be unemployed. It just you're you're looking for. It, it could come to my home, and I would answer a series of questions as to what's happening yeah. in my home. Correct. Exactly. So it's what we call a person based person based survey. So we're asking about. We're ultimately what we're trying to do is determine how many people are employed or unemployed. Um, we do have other surveys where we target businesses, where we go and ask. Uh, uh, so, for example, we have what we call the job vacancy survey, where we go and ask businesses from their point of view um, how many vacant positions they're looking to staff. So by looking at two sides, both sides of the equation, what we call the supply or the people and the demand or the businesses, that gives us an overall uh, snapshot of what's going on in the labor market. Now, you say it's more important than ever to have this information, not just job information, but cost of living information. So what do you mean by that? So uh, one of the one of the pieces of information we collect is, is wages. And of course, wages are a big uh, determining factor in terms of ultimately the prices that consumers pay for products and services. So we are, uh, with other colleagues at StatCan, we're keeping a close eye on what's happening with inflation. And the contribution that LFS makes to that, or the first survey makes to that, is to measure the change in the wages that people are receiving. So when we do that, um, that's been that's been challenging because um, the 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 mix of employment in Canada has varied quite a bit over the past eighteen months because of COVID. We've had some of the biggest job losses have been amongst lower paid occupations. So that tends to result in a higher average wage if you if you eliminate the lower end of the spectrum. So it's been challenging, but we're we're keeping a close eye on again what wages are doing and how that's related to to, to price inflation. Vince, before we let you go here, we're going to speak to Restaurants Canada in just about uh, 25 minutes time here. And one of the questions I have for them is data that shows uh, youth in Canada over the last uh, 10, 11, 12 years, the number of people 15 to 24 that are eligible to enter the workforce simply aren't. Have you got any data that would back that up? We actually see, I, I can speak to the the period since COVID, um, we actually see that what we call labor force participation or the proportion of people in, a, in an age group who are either employed or looking for work is actually back to pre-COVID levels. Um, so we haven't seen a withdrawal from the labor market, uh, certainly amongst youth. Um, a bit of a, there was a period where maybe that was true of, of young women, but uh, throughout the COVID period, young men have kind of stuck in there and have not withdrawn from the labor market in any great numbers. Vince Dale, Director, Center for Labour Market Information at Statistics Canada, joining us live to talk about the Labour Force Survey. Vince, thank you very much for the time. No problem. Thank you. The topic is the craziest meal You've ever had, whether it's something super exotic, maybe you're off in some far distant land, or maybe it was just a crazily huge, bizarro meal. 
Liz says, we were on a trip to Disneyland, and on our many stops on the way, there was a burger joint called Whataburger. So we went there. The kids and I got a table. My husband ordered four hamburgers, four fries, and four drinks. He brought the tray and said, I'll be right back, and came back with another tray. The burgers were the size of a sandwich plate. The fries were the size of a large drink, and the drinks were the size of a median popcorn. Yeah, bucket full of pop. We could have shared one tray, but we ate the whole thing. Not the kids, of course, uh, and we never felt so crappy later. Needless to say, as well, the next stop was a hotel, and we never went to another <laughs> Whataburger again. So <laughs> I got to look this up. Whataburger. Yeah, that sounds great. I, I, I recognize the sign, but I've never been there. And, uh, yeah, I was trying to figure out uh, exactly what menu item this is from being on the we- website. But, uh, yeah, their their burgers look delicious. So keep those texts coming for a chance to win. Bomber tickets will give them away just after 9.15. And, hey, we, 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 we like talking about food. We love talking about food. We like making ourselves hungry. It's, it's kind of like this. this uh, uh, yeah, it's like we're gluttons for punishment that way. Yeah, we're doing right? it to ourselves. And Johnny, Loren, I don't know if you saw Johnny's text message about 6.20 this morning. Guys. Uh, I'm a little light on lunch today. Please don't have a discussion about food today. <laughs> I said, Johnny, you're going to be a little disappointed. Yeah, it's like I just now went upstairs to grab something to eat. And, you know, you open the fridge and you're like, there's no good leftovers in here. I'm definitely not having an 8 a.m. salad. You couldn't convince me to eat this leftover stuffing that's been in here for 10 days. Okay, I'm out. I've got nothing. And we've been enticed all morning. Oh, no. So first off. food. Like, I can eat. Okay. But. All right. <laughs> Keep those texts coming, by the way. Bomber tickets, 9.15. Speaking of food, during the pandemic, there are hundreds of businesses in our community that have had to close, unfortunately, or alter their hours of operation or change how they deliver their service altogether. So as we make our way into this next phase, we know that labor shortages are being felt in many industries. So we just talked at 8 o'clock with Stats Canada, and of course, they reminded us that the employment, the total employment in this country has returned to pre-pandemic levels. But if you look at the food service and accommodation sector, it's 180,300 jobs below the levels they saw back in February 2020. So that would be pre-pandemic. So this includes 3,000 jobs still missing from Manitoba's restaurant industry, Greg. Yeah, and according to labor statistics and surveys, nine of 10 restaurant operators say they are struggling to staff their establishments. James Ryland is Restaurants Canada Vice President, Central Canada. Good morning, James. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for uh, being with us. As we continue this next phase of dealing with COVID-19, we know that restaurants in our province are having to operate with some expanded rules around vaccination status and all that goes with that. But maybe help us understand the situation restaurant operators find themselves in with regard to staffing. Uh, Those numbers sound stark, 9 out of 10, saying they're short-staffed. Just give us an idea what that looks like. Well, what it looks like is uh, fewer hours. Uh, It's people having to change their menus to make it simpler uh, so you can uh, serve people with less less, uh, staff. Um, Means uh, some are closing one or two days a week when normally they wouldn't. Uh, It's having to redeploy staff. And in many cases, it's just the uh, owner has to work a few extra shifts. uh, um, So they're trying to do their best and make up for the loss, but... uh, 
a lot of people have left the industry and it's hard to replace them. So, you know, you hear all sorts of reasons why, James, and I think that's the thing that people are struggling with. We had a couple small businesses text in this morning to say, hang on, like I, we have, we have jobs for people. We just don't have people applying. So are you not getting the applications? Are you not getting the experienced workers? What is it? I think it's both. Uh, we're not uh, definitely applications are way down where, you know, if, if a job came up, uh, up uh, before you get 40 or 50 applications, now there's three or four applications. So um, it's it's partly that uh, partly a lot of good people have left the industry. And, and those are the people you, you rely on to keep your business going um, to whenever you need something, they're there to help you. Uh, They've moved on to other industries. Uh, when, when we were facing all these lockdowns, and from week to week, people didn't know whether restaurants would be open or not. A lot of people just said, "I, I owe it to my family and myself to uh, get a job that I know will be here from week to week." So, once they left the industry, uh, it's hard to get find people to replace them. Now, last week we shared an article from Forbes, which talked about staff turnover in some restaurants in the U.S and how that's over 100% annually. Now, this is pre-pandemic. We've heard many suggest that this is uh, a CERB and an extended EI benefits situation. Can we blame this entire situation on these supports for workers? I think early in the pandemic, when the, when people first started coming back for, to work, it was an issue. Um, it's not so much now. Uh, most of the people that would have uh, qualified for CERB have, have used up their allotments. So, um, I, I think, you know, definitely right now it's, it's many you can things. Go ahead, uh, go ahead and grab that phone sorry. if you want to just hit. No, I, it happens all the time with us. So. I apologize. I thought <laughs> it, it was off. Um, so I, I think one thing that you just touched on though is culture and, and people in the restaurant industry have to look at how do we, how do employees want, look at these jobs? Um, do they look at them as just part-time, as something that they do while they're doing something else in their life? Or do they look at them as long-time career jobs? And I think the industry is is in a place where they say, we need to make sure that people see these as career jobs and that they can start in a restaurant and move their way up and maybe become an owner or a manager or a, or a executive in a, a food company. So that's what we have to do. We have to change the entire culture of the industry. It's interesting you mentioned that because the, the culture was good to me. I loved it. I was a longtime uh, restaurant worker and uh, the notion that good employees, good people were hard to find and even more difficult to keep really rings true right now based on what I'm hearing you say as we have this conversation, we work through this, James. But I recently had a high-level executive with a major fast food chain. He always insists I call it QSR, quality, uh, quick-serve restaurant, right? He likes me to call it. Uh, he says that part of the issue over the past decade or even more is the labor force participation rate for youth. And that is incredibly low because, you know, when we when I was in my teenage years, just about everybody I knew had a job. 15, 16, 17, 18. Has this shifted? Uh, it's twofold. It definitely has shifted. And, uh, you know, I, I anecdotally, I look at my own family. My daughter's 16 and she has about eight friends she hangs out with. And uh, of those eight, there, only two of them had a job this summer and when i was 16 i don't think i knew knew anybody that didn't have a job so that's definitely part of it people are delaying uh going into the workforce for school reasons or for sports or to do other things um you're also seeing that that uh amount demographically 
that's a smaller group than, than ever before. Um, it used to be um, a lot larger. Um, now that people are having fewer children, uh, it's just as the silver wave works its way through. Um, we just don't see as many people applying for many reasons. And that's where we traditionally have looked at getting our employees and getting the, the bulk of our employees. So do we need to change that or do we need to figure a way to get these people to say, okay, I actually do think I need to get a job. And what we tell them is when when you have go looking for your first career job after you get out of university, if somebody sees on your resume that you've worked in a restaurant, it, it, you go to the top of the pile. They know you know how to work. And hopefully we can get that message out to young people. All right, James Rylett, Restaurants Canada Vice President for Central Canada, joining us live on 680 CJOB. James, thank you very much for joining us. We appreciate the time, sir. Anytime. Thank you for your interest. Yeah, and I was just, uh, when I was at the Grove on Thursday, Greg, uh, there was somebody who was just starting, first day on the job. And I suspect that that's probably going to happen. You know, you're going to see that in a lot of restaurants. Like I know some, I think even the Grove might be one of them where they don't, it's been a while since they've been open for lunch. They're just open for dinner. I used to like to go there for lunch sometimes, but they only have uh, the shorter hours because they're one of dozens of restaurants that don't have the staff. Yeah. Makes you wish they would. And for those servers sake, they almost need that novice driver sticker, like a novice server sticker, because it's such a, it is a challenging job and there's lots of moving parts to work in that industry. And I served in four or five different restaurants in my lifetime and, and each one was different. And so you got to have your patience with the servers too, right? Well, yes. And the other side of this is the fact that if there aren't a lot of hours to go around. Right. The idea of making it a career obviously isn't as enticing maybe as it used to be. And if the restaurant can't guarantee you hours around your availability, that's always been a challenge in terms of staffing a restaurant. Because, yeah, you have good people. Yeah, but I go to university and I participate in this sport or extracurricular activity. You will work around them. Typically, you could find a way to make space. But right now... Just seems like they're so desperate for folks. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, inspired by the Tot Dog, a new offering from the Winnipeg Jets this year. We tried it yesterday ahead of Thursday's home opener. It's basically a, like a tater tot hot dog. It is amazing, but it's it's a it's a crazy meal. It's a crazy meal, and it got us thinking about the craziest stuff we've ever eaten, whether it's the biggest meal or the most exotic or the weirdest, whatever. Uh, we're giving away bomber tickets for Saturday's game. And Greg, why don't you start us off with Paul's text? <laughs> Just because this one made me laugh. Weird food for me always goes back to an all-night beer and Nintendo baseball tournament during college at a friend's apartment. Very early morning as everyone is asleep. I'm looking for food and all that is left are the crumbs at the bottom of the KFC extra crispy bucket. Well, two buttered pieces of bread later. Breading sandwich. Mmm, yum. And a warm beer to wash it down the depths. Fall to sometimes, or one's fall, one falls can sometimes be dramatic. Paul, thank you for that uh, extraordinary uh, adventure of yours. No shame in that, Paul. 
There is no shame in that. Let's not. None of us can pretend that we haven't grabbed something and wiped clean a pizza box, oh, yeah. or you know, like the bottom of a French fry thing, or the chip bag that you know is empty, but you tilted up the bottom of your mouth because there could be chip dust. Yeah, you don't want to miss out on the chip dust, Paul. <laughs> I just say kudos to you, Loren. Why don't you read the uh, this next one involving ice cream? So they say, hey, Greg, back when I was about 12 or so, me and three buddies went to the Dairy Bee on Osborne. They had a special on where there were 20 scoops of ice cream, nuts, strawberries, blueberries, whipped cream in the bowl, like a punch bowl, and you had to eat it in 30 minutes. You could use two people. So me and a buddy ate it in 20 minutes. So it was free. Cost would have cost us 20 bucks. A big savings there. 10 hours a few hours later, sorry, we were walking past McDonald's and the guy who ate the ice cream with decided to have a Big Mac fries and a drink. <laughs> I just couldn't do it. That's called a bottomless pit there. That's a hard, like, it's hard to eat ice cream when it's cold to get the brain freeze. Yes. Yeah. But then to go past to McDonald's and grab a combo, that's something special. When you're around 12, 13, 14, bottomless pit is oh, correct. Yeah. Just endless appetite. But uh, kudos to the guy who kept going. Um, this next text... We got to add a disclaimer here because it's such an incredible story, but it, it's not necessarily for the faint of heart. But I just, it, I, the picture that's painted here by Henry, I, it, it's extraordinary. We attended an African dance and dinner show in Cuba. During the dance, a dancer grabbed a wild turkey and bit its head off. And the appetizer was. Chicken feet. Now, the thought of that is disgusting, but it tasted good. The meal was a weird-looking fish smothered in sauce. Everything tasted awesome. My body accepted none of it. And then after dinner, we were brought on stage and slapped with giant leaves. It was a once-in-a-lifetime experience. Love Henry's stories. What a life he's Slap led. Slap with leaves is what... <laughs> I feel like that's the weirdest part. I need to know more about the custom there. <laughs> I, 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 I balked. I, was, I, I left out a couple of details <laughs> oh, okay. in that story. But, uh, yeah, I just the, the whole thing, it just sounds like something like you get transported off to this magical land. Sure. Yeah. But, uh, Greg, Jeanette is our winner. Jeanette went to Malaysia about four years ago. She says, my husband and I were treated to a local favorite, freshly grilled stingray. It was served on a bed of banana leaves, covered in a spicy brown sauce with green beans, fresh limes, and hot sauce on the side. And oh my, it was delicious. The outside skin was a little crispy. The flesh had just a hint of fish taste. And even though it had many, many bones, they were so thin and soft like cartilage, you ate them as well. Wow. While I was thoroughly enjoying the experience later on, all I could think of was... Oh, gross. I ate Stingray. <laughs> and Jeanette uh, bestowed upon us uh, photos of the experience, the Stingray before it was grilled, and then the incredible presentation as it came to the to the dinner table. Yeah. I so. hope this wasn't like, because Brett, both you and I have swam with Stingray before, right? Yeah, in the Cayman like, Islands. I hope it wasn't like where you swim with a Stingray and get to know them and then pick yeah. your dinner. Come here, bud. Well, is, is that like, well, it's like when you pick the lobster out of the oh. tank. I just, I can't do it. I can't. I, no, I, I, look I, it I'm in a, the eye. I'm a carnivore, but I can't choose the animal I'm about to eat. No, yeah. I just think those too, beautiful you know? Stingray and you're so blessed to be in the water with them. I know that's not the, what happened in the Cayman. Yeah. Um, but I'm just wondering if that's what happened with her in Malaysia or if it really just was on the, on the restaurant menu. Just on the menu. Yeah. <laughs> I'll get Stingray. We mentioned this earlier in the show. 
But yesterday afternoon, we got a sneak peek at what fans will see Thursday night for the Winnipeg Jets home opener versus the Anaheim Ducks. Oh, my goodness. And is it spectacular? You know, if you've been to games in other NHL cities or Major League Baseball, NFL, and I'm thinking right now of Vegas in particular where they have a drum line that stands up at the top of it's the south or the north end of the arena and they'll be hammering away on their drums throughout the game very robotic very futuristic looking uh they also have this massive siren which somebody gets to crank up before every game and then they have this mini on ice play which depicts the home team night slaying the visiting team dragon and the knight is an actual guy on skates but the dragon is some sort of digital representation projected on the ice and more and more that's what's happening pre-game and between whistles that is that is exciting the fans it's an opportunity for the home team to enhance the excitement for for fans altogether and the game is of course the focus but as we will hear loren from kyle Ballharry, as senior director of game production with true north sports and entertainment the game day production element of your in arena experience is going next level at canada life center it is not going to involve me in the penalty box calling Toronto or whatever that bat phone did that I tried to access <laughs> yesterday as part of our tour. Uh, in the middle, I guess it's what the refs use to call upstairs or call downstairs or call East Coast. It won't involve that, but it's it is really cool and it's going to make you want to. Like I hate missing the national anthem at the game because I just love being part of that. And this is going to make you want to get there earlier for the pregame warm-up and all the other things that they have added this year uh, because it's pretty spectacular. Here's Kyle with what you could see. We've added some spectacular things this year, including um, a projector system, a uh, digital projector system, which is new to the arena. I mean, certainly you've seen those things in place in Montreal and Toronto and some of the big arenas, but now here in Winnipeg, we have it as well. And it's state of the art. Uh, it is 40,000 lumens and we're super excited about it. Uh, basically anytime that the lights are off in the arena now, so in the pregame or the intermissions, uh, that's exactly uh, where we're gonna run it. So there's a spectacular new intro, of course, that we want everyone to show up early for. Coming to the games early is actually even more important than it has been before. I mean, I would absolutely encourage all the hockey fans out there to come no later than warm-up. Warm-up is kind of when the experience starts and you see the visiting players, you see our players, you can catch pucks over the boards and then shortly after that is our countdown and our intro and when all the real excitement begins. So, I wouldn't come to the games at 7 o'clock anymore. I'd get there for 6.30 or earlier because that's when the excitement begins. You played a video for us and I admitted to Brett afterwards I felt a little teary just from the emotion of things, right? So if you're explaining to people who are listening, what do you see on the ice with that projector system? Basically the whole ice becomes a screen for you. It really does. It's another. It's the largest canvas we have in the arena now, uh, and it's a white canvas, so you can imagine that the colors really pop. Um, there is projectors that hang from the rafters that, that aim straight down, so you can imagine any video, any live video, um, any graphics, anywhere from promoting our 50-50 to um, our headshots of the players on the ice to a spectacular player intro on opening night to all the elements of an intro, and it could be a jet flying on the ice, it could be logos flying across the ice, it could be... Um, man, our fans on the ice. So there's, I mean, again, we're, we're excited. We've only had it for a month, but we're, we're thrilled on you know, what we have so far and also what's, what's coming. The in-game experience has become 
such a critical part of the entire evening. It's not just hockey anymore. Not that you don't have a building full of people that are here, whether you've got this on ice projection or playing no music or they'd watch it under any circumstance. But you're in competition with some serious entertainment options at home otherwise and COVID as well. So this is an opportunity to maybe re-engage with some folks either that haven't been here for several years or that maybe have never been here before. Fair? Fair, and I couldn't agree more. There, the the 15,000 people in the arena are a wide range of folks, and there certainly is diehard hockey fans. But there's also people that have maybe never been to a hockey game. Maybe it's someone's last hockey game. Maybe they're 90. Maybe they're 12. It's kind of something for everyone. So the overarching thing we're selling is hockey, though, the NHL hockey experience. And, I mean, that's our brand, and that's the Sidney Crosby's and the Connor McDavid and the Blake Wheeler and the all the players on our team. Like, it's, it, it is a hockey experience, but it is vital now. I mean, we saw a giant octopus on the ice in Vegas the other night, which was spectacular. And there, I got to say that the game presentation people from around the league, they've really started to, 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 to really focus in on hiring some really quality people in other markets as well, I've noticed. And it, it is something big. And people are paying big dollars to come and, and watch NHL games. And that show starts four hours before the game, not at puck drop. And I think that mentality of coming for puck drop you're paying for a ticket and you want to experience everything, you might as well come early and enjoy the sights, the smells, the food, and of course, all the spectacular things that happen in every arena before the puck drops. Is it competitive then? I'm curious if with the Vegas Golden Knights and what they're doing, some people might have said, oh, that's silly, but most people I think are looking at it and thinking, huh, that looks fun. And so I'm curious, A, are you learning from one another? Are you kind of in that fun competitive space? I'd say yes to all of that. I think there is definitely some competitive. I mean, anytime you're, I mean, hey, we're the Winnipeg Jets. I mean, we don't play on the ice, but we work for the team and we represent the city and we represent everything that we do. We want to have an intro and a team and a concession experience and everything as good as every other team. We're competitive that way. And I think Winnipegers want to be competitive that way. And the fact that we can be competitive in something like our game presentation with Vegas and with Montreal and with all those other teams, that says a lot. And, and what it comes down to is the people that, that create it and work for it and, and are passionate about this. We don't have a lot of people that want to work nine to five. We want to have a lot of people that want to put on the best hockey experience on earth. And that might sound silly, but that's what we strive for. Winnipeg is one of the greatest hockey cities on earth and our fans deserve that. So there's competition, but there's also a lot of sharing. You, see, you know, it was cool that they did that, that octopus in Vegas. Would we put an octopus on the ice here? Maybe, maybe not, I don't know, but we will have a jet on the ice. We'll have an F-18 on the ice and it'll be awesome. And hopefully it gives everyone those chills and just that love of team and community and everything that we're, we're trying to accomplish here. Well, along the lines of what Loren just asked you, like, are you scouting other teams, you know, game day experience in order to bring certain elements yeah. here? And, and, and does that force you to up your game? Yeah, it totally does. Every, we watch what goes on and now with the internet, of course, and social media, someone puts, someone does an awesome intro anywhere and it's all across, all across social media. And everybody's saying, did you see what Vegas did or what Montreal did or, what Winnipeg did, you know, where we, yeah, it's, it's, we want people to notice and we want people to say that, man, you know, the Jets do it right. We want them to be proud of everything that we do here. And, and that's people watching at home on TV and that's people here, of course, and feeling special again about being in the, probably the place that the most people in Winnipeg gather in a year. That's, this is the place, if you combine everything together, where most people would gather and it's for hockey and to celebrate our players and the game and trying to win the Stanley Cup because ultimately it's been over a hundred years since we've won the Cup 
And I think it burning inside of almost every hockey fan is that incredible desire to one day have a parade and, and, and have a cup back here in Winnipeg. Now, uh, not to abruptly move from one sport to the other, but we need to do just that. Brett McGarry, Loren McNabb, the Winnipeg Blue Bombers have made a trade. They've acquired a place kicker. His name will be familiar to Blue Bomber fans because he kicked for the team back in 2014, Sergio Castilla. Castillo, pardon me. I mean, I believe it's Sergio, not Sergio, but I could be proven wrong on this. Sergio Castillo has been acquired by the Winnipeg Blue Bombers from the BC Lions in exchange for a 2022 fourth round pick. So the Blue Bombers, the concern all season, despite their 9-1 and record, has been their place-kicking game. Ali Mortada did a much better job this past week in Edmonton, making four of his five attempts and converting uh, both of his converts on Friday night. But uh, Mortada has been less than reliable. Uh, Castillo has been uh, kicking around the NFL over the last couple of seasons and uh, is now returning to the Winnipeg Blue Bombers as part of the trade with the BC Lions. Wow. All That's right. exciting. So do you think they go in the game Saturday? Tough or to say. with Mortada? Well, it's tough to say uh, vaccination status. Right. Has he been in Canada? All the different things. Does he have to quarantine, et cetera, et cetera. We'll learn more from the Blue Bombers throughout the day on Does this. he have a cool hat, like t- Twitter handle? Like Hakuna Mortada is my question. Because <laughs> if he doesn't, he's number two. It's not as three. cool. It's <laughs> El- well, it's not bad. It's El Quistador. That's oh, what it is. So that's that. that's okay. good. Okay. Competition on the field, competition on Twitter. Speaking of social media, if you want to see the video of the the Winnipeg Jets, their new projector system, the pregame intro, it's on our 680 CJOB Instagram. And we put a whole bunch of highlights from our visit yesterday. Greg giving us some trivia, some facts about what's behind the bench, what's in the penalty box. You can find all those on our Instagram story. And I'm just in the process of actually uploading a few more pictures from when we were down at Center Ice yesterday. It was a cool day. We're looking forward to Thursday. Who's excited for Jets hockey? Home opener Thursday night. But a reminder, they're in action tonight as well. Hey, thanks for listening to The Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think, and hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG. That's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global and on Instagram at McNab on C-J-O-B. Talk soon.